Hi folks, Professor Chetlin here and welcome to Office Hours Summer Sessions. For the next few weeks as we enjoy our summer break, Office Hours will release a podcast every other week and we're focusing on things that we can learn, whether it's how to be an adult, life in Appalachia, or study abroad, Office Hours Summer School will provide a little bit of enrichment as you relax from the school year. Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Senior Quayla Hugh about opportunities. Hello, Quayla. Hi, Professor Chatwin. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How was your spring break? It was good. I was here, um, but I enjoyed being around friends and just chilling and enjoying D.C. This is your last spring break as a senior. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things you think you're going to miss the most about college? Um, but easily, by far, living five, ten minutes away from friends. Um, and being able to have impromptu sleepovers. Yeah. You guys are so cute. <laughs> um, so when you do your sleepovers, what do you you watch TV or you just talk all night? Um, a little bit of both. We normally like put on a movie that we're like really into, and then someone has a comment, we have a pause <laughs> the movie, and then launch into a whole discussion. Um, were you part of the Dream Girls watching session? I was not. I was working, but I I didn't know it was a success. <laughs> what is some? What is what are some of the movies that you've watched recently with um, your friends? We just watched Gridiron Gang last night, mm-hmm. um, which is about, like, a youth detention center that they turn into uh, a football team. Is that supposed to be funny? No. It, no. Oh. <laughs> it's really funny. I was like, that doesn't sound amusing <laughs> at all. Um, it's, like, a really, it's a drama. Uh-huh. Um, similar to, like, Longest Yard. Um, okay. But, like, for children, and it's... Serious. So even when you are socializing with your friends, you're on it. You're on your <laughs> yeah. research topic. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about two things that I think are related. One, your senior thesis about children of incarcerated parents mm-hmm. and some of the opportunities that you have capitalized on college, particularly the PPIA program. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about PPIA? Sure. Um, so PPIA is a public policy and international affairs Um, summer program Um, and right now it's held in four schools and I know they're expanding so it's something that you do over the summer between your junior and senior year Um, and you can be at Princeton, Carnegie Mellon, UC Berkeley or UMichigan Mm -hmm. Um, and you're taking three classes. Two are quantitative based so economics and statistics and then another in policy writing. And that's supposed to be for people who are interested or think they're interested in going into public policy, um, which I think a lot of people who want to make social changes are. And they so often immediately jump to law school because that's seen as the only route, um, not realizing that there are MPPs, um, Masters of Public Policy or Master of Public Affairs available out there to give them the toolbox that they need to 
change these issues. And, like, another part of the goal of PPIA is for underrepresented students Mm -hmm. um, to get into those fields. And so um, of all the ways that you can spend your summer, (laughs) why why was taking quant, like, the thing to do for you? Um, So I'm a social and drugs major. And, Justice and, and Peace Studies, yes. for those who are outside of the Georgetown <laughs> yes. bubble. Um, so I didn't have a lot of quantitative classes, and I knew that was going to be important for me when I w- eventually applied to graduate school. Um, and I wanted to be surrounded about, by dope people. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. No, um, these are students who are just doing amazing, phenomenal things, and it was always an honor and a blessing to be able to sit around, like, the lunchroom table or get up cranky at 8 o'clock in the morning and go to class. Um, But they're also motivated trying to change things in their communities. Um, That Those are the people I wanted to spend my time with. And which program did you do? What campus? UC Berkeley. So what was it like being in Northern California? Because you are such a New Yorker, for real. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know what it means. No, I mean when I, I mean, have you been? You had you been to the West Coast before? I had gone to San Diego for a three day conference, so I didn't see a lot of the city. Okay, um, so <laughs> tell me what it was like. I mean, in the New Yorker, in the sense that you're very independent, mm-hmm. you're really about your business, you don't play around. Yeah. You're also your fashion sense is always there. <laughs> like you. you're doing casual right now, and you're, you're like killing me right now. So, I mean, I think that there is a sensibility, especially mm-hmm. going to an, an East Coast school like mm-hmm. Georgetown, and here you are at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. What was that? A, experience like um it was refreshing and scary at (laughs) times um I when I love the weather over there it's always warm you wake up and the sun is out I was running in the morning I hate running (laughs) you're like physical exercise became a key part of my life because everyone else is doing yeah (laughs) um and people were just happy and smiling um so that was a nice change, but they're also really laid back mm-hmm. all the time. And as a tried and true New Yorker and East Coaster, like, it got me a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. There was a Wednesday <laughs> afternoon that I had gotten early out of something, and I was, like, in the Castro District at a park enjoying life and scenery. Mm-hmm. But there were so many people around, and it genuinely confused me. <laughs> You're like, why are they at work, or why are they on the subway? It's like there can't be so many people who can just chill on a Wednesday afternoon. Honestly, I was a little nervous. I was like, maybe I forgot to do something, because <laughs> everyone is chilling and so relaxed. Um, but it's definitely a nice change of pace and nice to see that they're happy and doing amazing things. Mm-hmm. And still managing to get sleep and enjoying life. Well, you talk about this... Co- the PPIA cohort about being about doing stuff in communities. Mm -hmm. What are some of the issues that you want to work for Mm -hmm. in your community? What were some of the things that you thought about during that summer program? Um, So I've always been invested in criminal justice reform. And so that's what I was thinking about. Um, By the end of the summer, we worked on a uh, policy proposal on getting more education programs in um, prisons in like Northern Cal and just showing the like actual um, productive outcomes it would have and reducing um, the budget for prisons. What type of um, programs do you think are most effective in that setting? In the prison setting? Yeah, what kind of educational programs specifically? Are we talking about GD, vocational training? Um, 
So, I think the science, what does the science support? Education programs and I think vocational programs are really effective, um, but they absolutely have to be coupled with reentry programs for like social um, interactions and helping people ease in. Um, like those counseling services mm-hmm. are integral because people can know how have a skill and know how to work, um, but if they're not used to the social contract that we have out in general public versus Mm -hmm. in prison, um, it's going to be a hard transition and that makes it harder for them to work and harder for them to integrate back into their families um, and their communities. What are some other places that you've worked on this issue? Because I know Mm -hmm. that you are particularly concerned about the children of incarcerated people. Yeah. Um, So the children of incarcerated people is a new um, interest that sparked, I think, working so much with people who have been previously incarcerated um you learn and like I have personal like I have family members who are in prison and like it's a much bigger issue than affecting an individual it's affecting the whole community it's affecting the family and there are just so much collateral consequences that that's where that passion grew from um but in DC there are a lot of grassroots organizations um I've worked with the reentry network for returning citizens um, since my junior year, and that's supposed to be a, it's all a group of returning citizens um, trying to support one another um, and telling each other about shared opportunities, um, but just being that supportive network where it's like, I want to do well and you want to do well, and sometimes that's hard, and sometimes we have these challenges um, or temptations, but we have to remember we have to stay strong. What are some of the very specific issues that the children of incarcerated people go through? I think this is such an interesting tipping point because when I, I mean, I, I kind of grew up with war on drugs and, mm-hmm. you know, the beginnings of like the beginnings of mass incarceration and no one was talking about it. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why I think there was silence was we didn't have the kind of good information in a really broad way. So books like The New Jim Crow weren't mm-hmm. out yet to really right. engage a larger public, but there was so much shame and secrecy around incarceration. And it wasn't until I was an adult Mm -hmm. that my mom was like, oh, yeah, this person's son was in prison. Or these people, you know, got caught up in these things. And I had no idea. And the idea that anyone would talk about it even Mm -hmm. was so shocking that what I I love about this moment, it's not just the advocacy, but people are just really being very clear about how this is tearing apart communities. So, I, I mean... Do you think you are growing up in an age where people are more transparent about these issues? I think they are. Um, And I think that has to do with the advent of, like, social media and people just being able to, like, share on Twitter or Facebook or whatever social platform they use. Because it feels anonymous. You can feel very Mm -hmm. empowered behind a closed door. And then people realize how empowering it is to share a story. Um, And I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, thank you. Um, for interviewing me and I'm like thank you for participating but it's really like sharing a story makes you feel like one makes you realize you're not the only person right um and it's not your fault and this is not something to be ashamed of um I think I found in a lot of cases it's made people stronger um children are incredibly resilient um and I think just talking about it you realize how much, how many people it's affecting and 
how we can support one another. So in New York, in, in your community, mm-hmm. was this a conversation among kids about incarceration? Not at all. People didn't talk. People didn't talk about it. Um, and, well, and I don't know if a lot of people are talking about it now. I think more. Mm-hmm. Um but so, I, I think we still need So how did you start this conversation mm-hmm. and, and talking about your own experiences? Um, I read some books about collateral consequences. Um, I think, I don't know, through various internships, I ended, at, ended up at uh, hearings on Congress mm-hmm. or things like that that talks about um, how expensive it is to make phone calls Yeah. Um, and how expensive it is to visit... Um, how it's hard to visit. You got a lot of people have to take a whole day off of work um, to travel to prisons that are very far away because they're never in the community. Right. Because why would you want to keep them connected and grounded and give them more motivation to come out and do better? That okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Just like looking at the collateral consequences, and also there's a stigma obviously associated with having a criminal record Mm -hmm. and it was interesting to me to think about how that translates to the children yeah um because a lot of children are like i'm the son or daughter of a thief or i'm the son or daughter of a drug dealer and and then they feel like that's always going to hold them back in life and yet i've come across in my time at georgetown so many people who have had incarcerated parents yes and it's like clearly you defied the odds so either you're great, which they are, but maybe the odds aren't so stacked up against them as they previously thought. And I want to change that notion. I think that one of the most revelatory things for me, and I always feel like I kind of know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I check Twitter, so I think I know what young people are talking <laughs> about. But in my own personal experiences as a professor, just how deeply mass incarceration is mm-hmm. impacting kids at various levels. Mm-hmm. It isn't just kids who are in the community colleges or mm-hmm. the state institutions or the first. In- I mean, this is something, and it, it's happening at kind of interesting scales of the socioeconomic ladder. Mm-hmm. And so I will encounter students who have experience with parents in federal prison for some of these white-collar crimes. And that definitely has its own stigma, though there's some resources there. And then a number of students who, because of drug addiction, they have seen the system. And then what we've seen now with just the mass deportations and the crackdowns from ICE, a whole new kind of category. And so, in a sense, you know, this is wrapping its arms around so many communities mm-hmm. and it's people who are so disconnected in the fight, mm-hmm. right? Because I think there's a way that privileged people deal with it. Mm-hmm. There's people with people with no voice do it. And then there's the chilling effect of people who say, you know, if I see undocumented people being taken away, I'm not going to be able to kind of be public about my own status. Mm-hmm. And so what are some ways you think that we can kind of bring these disparate groups together and say, you know, we are all dealing with something that's very similar and very destructive in our communities? That's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, that's a million-dollar question. How do we unite communities? I think there there has to be a lot of on-the-ground work. Um, and so... I think I've learned over the course of my, well, the course of my very short <laughs> professional career. Um, I used to think if I want to make big, broad, sweeping changes, I have to do something at the top. And what I've learned is you 
can't help us without us. So we need to be going around and doing um, street surveys and knocking on doors um, because you you don't know who's it's affecting in the community until you ask them. Um, and you ask them to come out to a meeting. Um, so I think it's about knowing who's in your community um, and doing a lot of, yeah, underground work. So you're currently working on a senior thesis mm-hmm. about children with incarcerated parents. What are some of the common threads in your conversations for your study? Mm-hmm. Um, I found a lot of students didn't live with their parent who is incarcerated now. Um, and I think that's helped protect them from things because they didn't see a big change or were raised by grandparents. So that the parent who was incarcerated has been in so long that they don't remember the parent in the household or they were just taken out of that household? Once they, Yeah, it's like parents were separated and they like lived Got with it. the mother and the father. So they never experienced living with the father so it didn't have as much of an effect as if that person was taken out um, or they grew up with their grandparents. Um, and But that then has other financial complications, um, especially for like single-headed homes that are by grandparents because they're raising this whole another generation that they didn't prepare for or plan for. Um, and they don't have the same energy to be running around the grandkids. Yeah. Um, what else? There is a lot of like self-blame, um, which is just heartbreaking to see. And... And you're interviewing college students, so older people. Yeah. And in terms of what the resources that they've sought out Mm -hmm. to deal with this, Mm -hmm. you know, are there support groups? Are there national organizations? You know, is there space for people in their 20s to talk about this experience? I found a lot of people haven't talked about it before. Yeah. Um, It's something that some of them are eventually finally coming around and being like, yeah, I've shared it with more friends or I can talk about it more and it's not the hush hush secret you yeah. know where it's like oh my father just lives upstate and it's <laughs> upstate prison you know it's so it's funny you say that when I lived in Oklahoma and mm-hmm. Oklahoma's incarceration rates are very high especially of women and it's one of the highest um, rates of people who are being raised by grandparents mm-hmm. I remember you know at the grocery store this woman you know is talking about how she's going to make this dinner for her husband mm-hmm. and I was like oh that's so sweet was he out of town and then she kind of takes like a second and she was like, yeah, you know, he was out of town for a while. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, and, and she said, the, you know, she he, she said the name of a city where there was a prison. I said, OK, I got yeah. you, you know, but there's, you know, the euphemisms, mm-hmm. the being away. And also, I think for parents, how do you explain, explain to a small child where yeah. their parent is um, versus an adult? Yeah. Um, and I think that's hard. So I found there tends to be more support groups and online blogs about how parents can deal with this. Yeah. But for the children actually going through it, I haven't found a lot of support. Um, and, you know, especially I think if it's something you're feeling guilt about, it's not something you want to, like, reach out and start talking to people about. Um, and it's interesting. I've reached out to two people who I know their mothers were incarcerated. I was going to ask you about the gendered element of what does it mean when mom's away versus dad? Um, Those were the two people who declined to do interviews with me. And I'm still, like, I don't want to push too much, but I think it definitely takes a harder toll on a child. 
um, given how our society is set up and it's, of course, your mother's supposed to be there. Right. Um, so for that, I can just read previous interviews um, and do that. What are some of the ways that as a college community, mm-hmm. right, as a university community, we can be more attentive to the mm-hmm. fact that some of our students have this experience? Yeah. I definitely think there's a student group for everything else. I think there needs to be a student group for this. Um, and at UC Berkeley, they have a group for students who were previously incarcerated. Excellent. Um, and I don't see why we couldn't do the same thing at Georgetown. Yeah. You were going to say something? Yeah, I don't. Because it's one thing for me to say that, um, mm-hmm. but I'm leaving this campus and I, that's not something I can like start. And so I think there still needs to be initiative from students who are going to be on this mm-hmm. campus for a bit longer to be a topic that they can talk about and like be open with. Um, yeah. And I don't know how to do that. Well, I think you're, I mean, I think your influence is enough. I, I think mm-hmm. this is, this is so powerful to me because you know, we see the issue shift, you know, and I've been a professor for almost 10 years now. And I think the single kind of most important movement in inspiring better conversation were the dreamers, were undocumented yeah. students coming out as undocumented and taking so many risks. Yeah. And that happening at the moment where we have this heightened um, you know, state response to um, deputizing everyone to turning everyone in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of courage is there, yeah. but just the honesty. And I'm, I'm so proud that you're part of that. I had no idea yeah. that you were doing this type of work um, on this campus. What are you, what do you think are some of the ways that being at an elite institution mm-hmm. and having students who have these experiences, how does that kind of intersect because there's one thing I think if you're in a huge school with a huge population Mm -hmm. the likelihood that someone is affected by the consequences the collateral Mm -hmm. collateral consequences of mass incarceration are high but I don't think we think about that in an elite institution how do you think that kind of complicates the narrative um it definitely encourages you to keep your story to yourself um yeah, especially with questions like, oh, what do your parents do? And it's like, well, right now, they're not doing too much. <laughs> they're in between some stuff. Right. right. I mean, that um, can feel like that can be a loaded question. Yeah. But I think Georgetown has the potential to really be leading a very important conversation because I have a lot of friends at other elite institutions and they don't have the same type of economic diversity that I think we do here at Georgetown and I think Mm -hmm. that's because we have amazing scholarship programs like GSP um, and have a good financial aid package. Um, Because this becomes complicated for financial aid because you have to report what parents are doing and I know students have talked about the discomfort of disclosure. Now back in, I don't know, back in my day Mm -hmm. you just filled out the FAFSA and you were kind of done with it. Maybe because I didn't go to school that was expensive. But I think from my understanding for financial, you have to account for where your parents are, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's like a CSS profile. And I know I, I've i had an understanding financial aid counselor. And they always like wave that non-custodial parent thing. So you um, don't have to get into yeah. the details? Um, and I think students should know that that's a form and that's some, that should be an option. Um, and even for people who, like, don't know their other parent, mm-hmm. like, you got to know what that non-custodial parental form is. Um, 
What are some of the ways that your experiences with the justice system and mm-hmm. with these questions about the impact of incarceration, how have they changed you, you think, as a person? Hmm. I think, I don't know about change, but I think I've been very blessed to know what I want to do from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was my 10th grade summer that I worked with the Bronx Defenders, which is a a public defense attorney um, in the Bronx, New York. And I just knew, like, this is what I wanted to do. I had to work on criminal justice issues. I used to walk around with the new Jim Crow as my, like, (laughs) annotated Bible. Um, And so I know there's nothing more fulfilling or meaningful to me than working for my community and making sure people aren't ashamed of this um, and making sure our community is rebounding from the war on drugs um, because they thought it was going to get us down, but I think we could come back better and stronger. That's beautiful. (laughs) So to wrap up our our wonderful conversation, um, if there's one thing you wish all your professors knew about you Mm. that you didn't get to tell them, over your four years or something that you would hope you could say? What mm-hmm. would it be? Huh. Um, like my professors probably know a lot about me. I'm always in office hours. And advice to students, always go to professors' office hours um, to just talk about life. You don't have to make up a question because um, they know when you're making up a question. It's so painful. <laughs> it's like, do you just want to spend some quality time? We can do yeah. that. Um. They probably know I'm a procrastinator, and <laughs> that's okay. I wish they knew I would love to do verbal exams. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, tell me more about because this. Because taking time to write and edit, edit some more to actually have a good paper is hard and time-consuming. And if I could sit down and prove to you I know what I'm talking about, I would really appreciate it. So maybe that's a move that some professors should make. Thank you for the feedback, (laughs) Mila. And thank you for all your hard work. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media, on Twitter, at Office Hours Pod, and on Instagram, on Office Hours Podcast.